If you have your Bibles, uh, y'all probably waiting on me. You can turn to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Uh, that's the passage we're going to be at uh, this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. <clears throat> As you know, we've been in uh, James's letter, and we've just been going through uh, how Pastor James has been talking to his, his hearers, his congregants, uh, about wisdom for the resurrected life. Um, and you're probably asking, so why, why are we in Ecclesiastes then? Well, we're taking a break to talk about something, well, kind of in flow with what James has been talking about uh, on, the, on the theme of wisdom. Um, if Pastor James has been going through this with his congregation, this week could be considered uh, the week that Pastor James brings in a guest preacher a voice from the past. And so uh, as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, we want to see what uh, this guest preacher uh, would say to us about uh, wisdom for the resurrected life. So let me go ahead and take a moment to pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this time. Uh, We thank you for uh, just gathering us and just helping us to, help us to respond in, in the, the right way to your words today. Help us to make application of it. Just open our, our, our hearts, our minds, uh, to be able to see you clearly in the scriptures, uh, to be drawn to you, to, to trust in you uh, above all things. Uh, Lord, may it be your words that go forth and not mine, uh, your thoughts that go forth and, and not my own. And uh, we ask that you would just be exalted uh, above everything. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... This week, as I said, Pastor James invites a a guest preacher uh, who will focus on this same topic of wisdom that he's been focused on uh, thus far, and uh, our guest today is King Solomon. What James has been teaching about in the previous verses concerning the brevity of life and uh, how it relates to those who are rich, uh, which again would be you and I, if you remember from last week's sermon, If James has been focusing on the brevity of life and uh, the temporary and fleeting pursuit of of riches that will fade away like the flowers and the grass, uh, Solomon lived this life. And so if this guest preacher, this voice from the past could stand in the presence of James's hearers, well, he might say some of the same things James has has said. Uh, But if you know anything about guest preachers, you know that they tend to say things that you don't typically hear uh, on a Sunday morning. And, And this can be both good and bad at times. Sometimes guest preachers have more examples, more stories, more illustrations, more more pointed statements at times. Because they only end up preaching one time, they don't really have anything to lose. And so uh, they often say, well, the pastor can clean it up if I mess this up for you. And so essentially that's what Solomon's saying here. If if I just go ahead and say some things to you about about life, I'm going to let Pastor James clean it up for you. And so with nothing to lose and with no reason to soften the force of his words, King Solomon proceeds to give us a sermon, an example of what James has been talking about, an an illustration uh, or a case study, if you will. And so if what James has been teaching on could be called wisdom for the resurrected life, Solomon's sermon here from Ecclesiastes could be called wisdom from the dissatisfied life. And so why this? Why here this week? Why why do we touch down in Ecclesiastes? Why should we care what Solomon thinks? Well, first, Solomon was the the wisest man to ever live. He could probably be in the running, if not the top three, of actually being called the most interesting man in the world. 
And so for you and I to sit down and have a conversation with Solomon, uh, it would benefit us all in, in some way. And so secondly, James, he's often considered the Proverbs of the New Testament, and that's largely due to the fact that he focuses on and even quotes from topics seen in the Proverbs of the Old Testament, many of them written by King Solomon. And then lastly, this sermon will be sandwiched in between Pastor James's words to the rich about the fleeting pursuits and pleasures of this life, the sermon that we heard last week, and then the words that we hear from James in the ongoing weeks about our own desires which entice us and seek to lead us down the road that ultimately leads to dissatisfaction and death. Solomon's sermon will be sandwiched in between those. And so in giving our ears to Solomon's, to hear out Solomon's wisdom from the dissatisfied life, we ultimately again want to be pointed to wisdom for the resurrected life. And so as we look at Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we'll go ahead and start and uh, welcome to King Solomon's wonderful world of dissatisfaction under the sun. Here Solomon is locked in this theme park of life under the sun. This is a place where he once thought unending pleasures resided, and now they've all become meaningless and a melancholy prison to Solomon. If you can imagine being locked inside of a theme park for the rest of your life, what a horrible experience that would be, right? At least for those of us over the age of five. The unending carnival music, the constant push of cotton candy and mediocre food and overexpensive snacks and water that's pushed at you on on a constant basis, the prizes, the the things that would quickly lose their magic. They will quickly lose the things that we, we once thought they were uh, after spending an hour or so in the park. This is what life has become to Solomon. After years and years of, of pleasure and self-indulgence, he's found himself dull and life unfulfilling. But how does he get himself here? Well, if you're familiar with Solomon, you know that here's a man who had everything. As Israel's greatest king, he has all those resources that a person needs in order to have a fulfilling life in this world. So so where does he miss it? How does a person whose life once seemed so promising, so fulfilled, now come to the place where he uses the words vanity and meaningless and a chasing after the wind to describe his experience and his existence in in verse 11? Well, that's what this preacher Solomon wants to teach us today about this life that we have, this life that we've been given from God. And so as we go through Ecclesiastes chapter 2, whatever you do today, don't distance yourself from King Solomon. Don't see his wealth, don't see his power or his resources, and immediately think that, well, I don't have all of those things in quantity, and so therefore I can't really relate to what Solomon is saying here. On the other hand, don't simply conclude that if this were you, that you just simply do things differently than Solomon. No, his quest is our quest. And a major, major reason for that is because we have so much available to us in our context, in this country, uh, concerning the realm of pleasures, all kinds of food and drink available to us. We don't even have to travel a mile to get to a grocery store that offers all kinds of food from all over the world. Excesses of possessions, music and art at our, at our fingertips, 
access to anywhere in the world in a matter of hours if we just hopped on a plane. All kinds of ways to indulge our minds and our bodies with whatever we desire. And, and we get so many people, so many people in our context in this day reach the very same conclusion about life that Solomon does here. The sadness, the frustration, vanity, meaninglessness. So again, it might be easier than you think for you to place yourself in Solomon's shoes. The question for us this morning is, would you be fulfilled if you had everything you ever wanted and needed? If you could indulge yourself in the pleasures of your relationships, your career, your possessions, your desires, do you think you'd find total and ultimate satisfaction? So we look at Ecclesiastes chapter two. This guest preacher Solomon, his experience that he talks about here is an experiment. It's the second experiment among many in this book. This is an experiment with pleasure. It's the experiment of a man who is wiser than anyone who's ever lived, but he's also a man who's turned his back on God. A man who's now seeking to find lasting satisfaction and fulfillment in life apart from God. And so now as we look at Solomon's second experiment, we'll just see two things that we can take away from it. We'll see Solomon's venture into pleasure, and then we'll see Solomon's verdict about pleasure. And so verse one, we see his venture. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So finding no fulfillment in, in his wisdom from the previous verses, Solomon now tests himself with unlimited pleasure. As Pastor James says in chapter two, uh, verse 14 of his book, Solomon has become now lured and enticed by his own desires. And as you're thinking about this and reading this, forget moderation, throw that out of the window. What Solomon says to himself here is this, heart, let me make you experience pleasure. And now therefore he only subjects himself to one charge, enjoy yourself. Now this, this wasn't a purposeless plunging into pleasure. Now, this was the, the world's wisest man strategically attempting to find the most pleasure possible that he can consume in an effort to find fulfillment and total satisfaction. This is a case study, although it's going to be a case study that will probably be very enjoyable for Solomon. In verse 1, he states the intent of his study, but then he also briefly states his verdict or his conclusion up front. He says, but behold, this was also vanity. And it's this verdict that we'll see again in verse 11 that will bookend this entire ex experience of Solomon's. And so continue to verse two. Solomon then begins to describe his quest for pleasure starting from within himself. Solomon's quest begins with laughter. He says, I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? Solomon addresses laughter and pleasure as, as two worthless friends that accompany him down the road to, to total fulfillment and satisfaction. Now this laughter, what is it? This isn't the kind of laughter that, that gives comfort or expresses fondness that you and I often use to joke with one another or, or show love to one another. This laughter is, is different. It's a superficial laughter of, of discontent. It's a laughter that comes from a place of emptiness a place of longing for, for something to fill it. It's a, a dark laughter that attempts to, to numb the conscience. 
It's the laughter that you look for and pursue when you hit comedy club after comedy club or, or binge watch a, a favorite sitcom or comedy looking to escape the, the sadness or, or brokenness or frustration or pain. You and I, we all know the, the familiar cliche that laughter is the best medicine. But is that true? Solomon wants to know the answer to that question. Is laughter really the best medicine? Can laughter, can enough laughter truly satisfy the soul or, or, true, or bring true healing and satisfaction to our brokenness? Listen, in all seriousness, I wish for a moment we could just ask some of the people who were gifted to give us such laughter about its ability to satisfy. Names like Robin Williams, Richard Pryor, Chris Farley, John Belushi, Tony Hancock, the list of of names could go on. These were people who were being crushed internally, dealing with sadness and frustration and depression and anxiety, all while they hid behind masks of laughter. Solomon himself has stated something similar before in the book of Proverbs, saying that even in laughter, the heart may ache, and at the end of joy, there may be grief. So this is what Solomon concludes about this laughter and pleasure. It's mad, it's foolish. And this pleasure, it's useless in the same sense because of its short-term and and emptiness, its short-term fulfillment. So now verse three. Solomon proceeds to tell us that his quest for pleasure now turns from laughter to intoxication. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. And so now Solomon begins to explore the pleasures of intoxication, particularly through wine and alcohol. But but look, we could just as easily include food as well in here. Solomon isn't just talking about merely becoming a, a, a taster or a connoisseur of wine. He's not just talking about drinking it occasionally or socially for its taste. He's talking about inhaling it, laying hold of folly, as he says later in this verse yet not quite staggering or stumbling into it. Because as he states later, that my heart was still guiding me with wisdom. The question for Solomon in this pursuit of intoxication is, how much pleasure can my body experience through my subjecting it, through my giving it over to the pull and influence of inebriation? Solomon's insatiable thirst for wine reveals an even deeper thirst for pleasure and satisfaction and meaning. We have so many terms for what Solomon's doing here, don't we? Terms for for drunkenness. If I keep my cup full, if I keep the river of alcohol flowing, will will it drown me in the waves of fulfillment? Drunkenness and, and, and being drunk, it's, it's so popular in our day, it can almost be synonymous with the term party, which is why we know Solomon isn't alone in this specific pursuit. He's sharing in this pursuit of pleasure through wine with others. He's partying night after night after night after night, looking to feel, looking to gain ultimate satisfaction and joy. First Kings chapter four describes Solomon's daily food provision saying that it was 30 cores of flowers and 60 cores of meal and 10 fat oxen and and 20 pasture fed cattle, no GMOs, 100 sheep besides deer and gazelles, roebucks and fattened fowl. 
This was literally tons of food, enough to feed roughly 50,000 people. And I'm sure some of you have gone hard in the paint, but listen, you don't party harder than Solomon. This man threw every resource that he had into the largest, most intoxicating, folly-filled, euphoric nights of his era. He didn't just lay hold of folly. This dude tackled it in pursuit of of trying to be fulfilled and satisfied. So the question for us this morning is, has this ever been you? Is this you presently? Is this why you drink? Is this why you eat? To drown away some sort of pain or callousness or dissatisfaction or emptiness or unfulfillment. We flip on the TV and the internet commercials that display all kinds of lasting pleasure that wine and alcohol promise us, but they, we know that they all fail to show us the complete picture. They don't show us the abuse. They don't show us the broken relationships. They don't show us the hangovers, the guilt and the shame from the DUIs, the Alcoholics Anonymous classes. They don't show us the emptiness, the unfulfillment that wine and alcohol and even food promises us. Listen, hear out this preacher. Solomon says his heart is searching. And even with his careful and strategic wisdom, which again is still guiding him in this moment, Solomon continues to search for what verse 3 says, what was good for the children of man in their days under heaven. This is what he's after in food and drink and pleasure, something that each of us is after in this life. What's good? What brings ultimate fulfillment during the few days that we have here on earth? Solomon is looking for ultimate good through the pursuit of good things, laughter, cheer, wine, pleasure. Make no mistake, this isn't Solomon's sermon about abstaining from alcohol. The Bible certainly has plenty to say about either abstaining from alcohol, but it also has plenty to say about the pleasures and the the, the good of wine. And listen, you don't even have to confine this to just alcohol. Even if you don't drink, that doesn't mean you can't put yourself in Solomon's shoes here. The question that we could all ask ourselves is, what is it that you use to cheer yourself in the pursuit of ultimate satisfaction? What is it that you've given yourself to? What is it that you've taken the passenger seat on and allowed to to steer your life in an attempt to secure ultimate pleasure and fulfillment? So now Solomon's quest takes a different turn. He's gone from the pursuit of finding pleasure from within through food and drink to finding pleasure from things outside of himself. Look at verses four through six, he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So now Solomon turns to the works of his hands. He turns to finding pleasure through his own creations and through God's creation. 1 Kings chapter 7 tells us that Solomon took 13 years to build a house for himself. And in addition to this, he, he built another house in the forest of Lebanon, possibly one of the forests that he's planted. And he also built a house for Pharaoh's daughter, who he, who he married. And in building these houses, 1 Kings chapter 7, 
It tells us that these houses were huge and luxurious. Mansions is an understatement. The stones that he used to build these houses were 12 to 20 feet long each, just for the foundation. This lavishness, this luxury points to the, us to the fact, again, that Solomon is going all in with this experiment. These are no mere do-it-yourself, stick-to-the-budget construction projects. There is no budget. Solomon's wealth, which is documented in, in the book of First, First Kings, was all but unlimited. And concerning his resources, he was the richest king in the richest nation on earth. It was nothing that this dude couldn't purchase twice. And so in addition to building these houses, he planted vineyards and he made gardens and parks for himself and for his subjects. Places where he could take in the beauty of nature, to be captured by the allure of creation. He says he also planted forests filled with all kinds of fruit trees and he also built irrigation systems for them, pools in the middle of the desert that would support this paradise that he built. This paradise. What Solomon does here echoes of what God did in making himself a garden in Genesis, filled with every kind of tree with its fruit. Again, Solomon is making his heart experience the pleasures of creation in their fullness. The pleasures of, of experiencing the beauty of the forest, the, the sounds and the sights of nature. First Kings tells us that if you and I were to sit down and have a conversation with Solomon, he would tell us about the pleasures and the beauty of all kinds of birds and reptiles and beasts and fish. Solomon is attempting to drown himself in the allure and the pleasures of God's creation. So furthermore, in verses seven through eight, Solomon's quest included the pursuit of, of work, of economic pleasures. In addition to building these parks and vineyards, he, he wanted people to occupy them and to tend to them as well, and to tend to him. He says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. Solomon established an economic workforce that surpassed every other empire during that day. He employed thousands of horsemen, thousands of servants who were drafted as forced labor, thousands of architects, sculptors, and construction workers. He was the mastermind, the brilliant engineer and businessman who brought Israel into its greatest era. The pleasures of Solomon's pursuit here are the pleasures of productivity, the pleasures of, of working. What you and I imagine when we think about diving into our careers or our tasks, throwing ourselves into becoming the best versions of ourselves, the most skilled, the most proficient in our professions, organizing, goal setting, executing, and accomplishing what we set out to do. Solomon goes from spending long nights of partying to spending long days of planning and executing, making plans and then watching them come into fruition probably with a 100% success rate. So in addition to this, he says, I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of treasures of kings and provinces. And so next we see Solomon the rancher, the agriculturist, the shepherd, the banker, the collector of treasures. Solomon acquires cattle and horses and sheep he raises them, he breeds them, he now leans into the work of farming. 
the tranquility, the care for the animals, the cultivation of the land, the building of pens and of stables. And how does he accumulate so much? Well, again, he pursues gathering silver and gold from nations around the world. He gathers so much gold for his kingdom that the book of 1 Kings tells us that silver is regarded as nothing. Solomon is looking to accumulate as much wealth as he possibly can, seeking to be satisfied in it. He's looking to obtain through his wealth worth, value, and greatness. And so Solomon, like us, it's, it's, we know that it's not just having the money that's, that's pleasurable, it's, it's what money can buy. And what we see from Solomon's empire is luxury and lavishness. It says his throne was covered in gold and ivory with lions lining the steps. Gold everywhere. Solomon's riches make rap videos in Hollywood look like the children's museum. He's attempting to find fulfillment and total satisfaction through the pursuit of wealth, through the pursuit of his works. And so if we take a step back for a moment, if we just take a step back, in one sense, Solomon is just doing his job as king, right? I mean, this is what, what kings did during this time in the ancient Near East, and it's what their subjects expected from them. But Solomon, he's not just any king, remember? He's not just a, 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 like any other pagan king. He's the king of God's people. He, he realizes God is there. He's not an atheist. He's not an agnostic He knows who God is, but remember, he's seeking to find fulfillment in life apart from God. And so as he's building these great edifices and accomplishing all of these great projects, throwing all of his possible resources behind them, he's not satisfied. Now, he's not bored, but the unnerving itch of pleasure is there at the end of every day, at the end of every accomplishment, at the end of every party and after party. Solomon is after something else in this quest besides the praise and the adoration from his subjects. He's after something else besides the world-renowned reputation that comes with these feats of greatness. At the bottom of all this, Solomon is really in this. He's really doing this experiment all for himself. In a sense, his quest is purely selfish. You look at the previous verses, he says, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I made myself pools to water the forest of trees. I gathered for myself silver and gold in the treasures of kings. Remember, this is all an experiment. This is all a test for maximizing Solomon's personal satisfaction. And although Solomon replicated his own version of Eden, one has to question, was he really just attempting to play God? Is what he's really after in this pursuit of pleasure just the desire to be self-sufficient by any means? And look, the question for us is, do you and I, do we share in this same desire with Solomon? The desire to be self-sufficient through whatever efforts we take in finding pleasure and and pursuing satisfaction for ourselves, apart from God, seeking to be sufficient within ourselves. And so in verse eight, Solomon also states that, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. 
So Solomon now pursues the pleasures of music, not just listening to it, but writing it as well. You see one of his more popular songs just a few pages to your left. Solomon establishes, with all of his resources, the the biggest and largest record label of his day. He owns the bands and they play whatever he wants them to play. Forget the iPod. Solomon now gives the reins of his pursuit of pleasure. He gives the reins and the steering wheel of this pursuit over to music. And look, this must have been quite the experience for anyone who who loves music. It's safe to assume that the pleasures of music were present and being pursued even throughout all of Solomon's activities here. The feasts, the accomplishments, the parks, the gardens. It's here through the melodic pleasures of all types of songs and instruments that Solomon is now looking to be inspired and motivated and encouraged and comforted and calmed and moved, hoping to find ultimate satisfaction. But when the music stops, when the song is over, when the next new song begins to play, the questions again begin to loom in Solomon's mind. Will, will, will this song satisfy? Will this new sound, this new instrument, will, will it bring me true satisfaction? Lastly, verse 8 says, Solomon also got for himself many wives and concubines. The term many there. The exact number was 700 wives and 300 concubines to explore the pleasures of of sex and sensual fulfillment. That's a thousand women. Now, Solomon didn't marry these 700 wives to looking for deep conversation and long walks in the park. He's now looking to explore and pursue pleasure steered by sex and, and sensual satisfaction. He's saying to himself, heart, how much sexual pleasure will bring you to a place of lasting delight and satisfaction? Now again, remember, this is a man who, as 1 Kings 11 tells us, that he had turned his back on God from following his laws, his obeying his commandments. This is a man who is searching for fulfillment and pleasure with his back towards God. This is, there's no standard of morality for Solomon here. There's no one man, one woman standard here. The restraints are off. The morality is out of the window. He's now attempting to drown him and exhaust himself in the pleasures of sex and attempting to find lasting fulfillment. Day after day, night after night, Solomon is looking to be quenched through the means of sexual and sensual pleasure. And listen, I don't think we need to work too hard to draw the lines between Solomon's harem and the plethora of ways that you and I can access sexual pleasure in our day to fulfill sensual desires. Just a few swipes on a smartphone, clicks of a mouse, maybe a trip to the bookstore, a click of the remote, and instantly our minds and our hearts are guided down the same path that Solomon now finds himself on, accumulating for ourselves a, a harem in our own minds. See, listen, although you might be shocked by this particular part of his pursuit, You and I, we're really no different from Solomon. And the question that we could ask ourselves is, are we seeking to find fulfillment in giving ourselves even to relational intimacy? So maybe you haven't committed your body, but what about your mind? What about your emotions? Believing that complete sufficiency and satisfaction might be found not in the pursuit of hundreds of men and women like Solomon here, but maybe in just just one. 
Maybe if the right one comes along, then I'll be satisfied, I'll be fulfilled, I'll be complete. If my spouse just got it together, if they just fixed this, if they just did that differently, I'd be satisfied. I'd be good. Then life would be fulfilling. See, this brings us to the end of Solomon's venture for pleasure, and now we'll get ready to transition to see Solomon's verdict about pleasure. At this point, if you're Pastor James and you're sitting there on the front row, you are just nervous. Because after Solomon has laid out this entire experience, you've got to be thinking, what is he going to conclude about all of this? Am I going to have to take the mic from this guy? Solomon concludes his quest in verse 9, summarizing. You want to know what I thought about all this? You want to know the conclusion I reached about this pursuit of pleasure? He says, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Now, notice the last part of that verse. Throughout this experiment, throughout all of this, of, of this case study, Solomon's been able to rationally and wisely evaluate the success or the failure of his pursuits. He says his wisdom remained with him, not detaching him from the reality of the experiences, but instead shaping and evaluating the results of his efforts. Now, Solomon being essentially embodied wisdom here, you would think that the kind of wisdom that Solomon refers to here is the, the godly kind of wisdom that Proverbs talks about, a wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord and turns from evil, a wisdom that would keep him from the abuse of many of these things in the first place. But no, this wisdom that Solomon possesses here is closer to his rationality, his, his reasoning. And while it doesn't restrain him from sin, it does redirect him to a truthful conclusion. And so while it's Solomon's desires that lead him into this venture, it's wisdom that brings him to this verdict. And let it be said here, verse nine, yes, he succeeded largely in the sense of productivity, surpassing all who were before him in Jerusalem, but, but what about in the sense of pleasure? Did he find success there? Well, let's keep reading. Solomon says that whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them, and I kept my heart from no pleasure, which means, yes, he was successful in giving himself without restriction to whatever in the quest of finding pleasure. He went full force with no restraints. He kept his eyes from nothing and his heart from nothing, and he continues giving the reason for his continual pursuit, saying, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. So the question, did he find pleasure? Yes. He found real pleasure in these things. And so therefore, he continued to pursue pleasure in these things. But is there anything more than that? What's the conclusion of, of that? What did he earn in the end? What was gained? Well, he continues and says, and this was my reward for all my toil. That's it. The pleasure is the reward. The pleasure that he experienced through the pursuit of laughter, drink, work, music, sex was enjoyable and it itself was the reward for what? For the work he did in pursuing it. And look, make no mistake, you will find pleasure in pleasurable things. There isn't anything wrong with these things in and of themselves, but if you're looking to obtain ultimate satisfaction, if you're looking to find ultimate meaning and gain and worth and value from these things, then your pursuit will disappoint you. 
See, it's, that's when the abuse of these good things begins to happen. It's when we take these things and believe that it's through them that we'll find ultimate fulfillment. And again, as James tells us, that's where sin begins to creep in and entice us through our own desires and lead you down a road that will result in unfulfillment and death. Solomon goes on to conclude something more about this entire experience. So yes, he experienced pleasure, but what was the meaning of it? What did it add to him personally? What worth or substance did he gain from the pleasure that he experienced from these things? I mean, that's what Solomon's looking for. The question is, are these things pleasurable? He didn't need to exhaust himself to find that out. The question is, is there anything to be gained from these things? Is there any meaning, sufficiency, lasting satisfaction? This is why he doesn't leave us hanging here after verse 10. And it's why he comes to this ultimate verdict in verse 11. He says, then I considered all that my hands had done in and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, it was all vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon's now facing the facts. That word consider there, it means to look in the eyes, to go toe to toe. Solomon is looking his experiment in the eyes and now making a conclusion. Yes, I took pleasure in my work. Yes, I took pleasure in all the toil and in the finished product. But what was it really worth? What did I really gain from this? Solomon's essentially saying in attempts to gather together all my accomplishments and all the pleasure that I had received from them, there's nothing more to these accomplishments than just that. Solomon, he expects a greater return on his investment. And now he's let down when he recognizes that in spite of all of this, he's gained nothing. The pleasure is fleeting, the pursuits add nothing to him. And it brings us to this hopeless conclusion. So what should we do? In light of this seemingly hopeless conclusion from Solomon, what should we do? Should we we just not pursue these things at all? Where do we find meaning if not in these things? James says they'll fade away like the flowers and the grass. Solomon says they're meaningless. What are we supposed to learn from this seemingly hopeless conclusion of Solomon's? Well, we can conclude two things from Solomon's conclusion here. The first thing we can, conclu- we can learn is contentment. Perhaps you're looking at your life and evaluating its meaning and, and worth through your accomplishments and pleasures as, as Solomon did. And maybe now you're not sure what to conclude. Solomon's silent answer in this moment is, be content. Enjoy the the gifts that you've been given by God in this life and keep them in the proper perspective. Yes, while these things give us pleasure, they cannot and are not meant to give us complete and total satisfaction. These things don't define us or add worth and value to us. The meaning that these things do have is is only a a shadow of what is truly substantial, what's truly of worth and value. And so Solomon silently points us to the fact in saying, be satisfied in the enjoyment of these things and the the pleasure that these things give and the, the purpose to which they point. 
He continues later in Ecclesiastes, summarizing and even bringing, bringing us to the same conclusion and saying, so I saw that there is nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. In Ecclesiastes 5, 18 and 19, he says, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Lastly, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Wife, singular, don't get 700 wives. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Solomon points us to contentment. But the next thing we can learn from Solomon's conclusion here is where we can find meaning. Yes, contentment is great, Solomon, I hear you out, but are we supposed to just be content under the sun until we die and then that's it? How is meaning achieved? Some of the last words of Solomon uses in this text is a phrase that he uses all throughout this book of Ecclesiastes. It's this phrase, under the sun, indicating this world that we live in, this earthly life that we've been given, the world, its people, its kingdoms, its systems, its treasures. All of these things are under the sun, and we've seen from this passage that nothing can be gained by them. And so in Solomon's venting of frustration, in his venting of his frustration, in his cries of vanity and meaninglessness, we see the problem. Everything in this created order, everything under the sun is not the way that it should be. And his pursuit for pleasure is only an indicator of something that resides within us all to be infinitely satisfied with joy, with life, with contentment, with purpose, with meaning. And if we're honest, the reality is that we've all missed it because we've placed our pursuits for pleasure in all other things. We've abused the gifts that God has given us by seeking lasting pleasure and sufficiency in them. So in these cries of dissatisfaction and in these moments of frustration with everything under the sun, we see the Creator. One who has established the entire created order. We see God who shows us our need for a new created order. He shows us our need for all things to be made right, including us, broken pleasure seekers. And although the wisdom of Solomon here doesn't give us an answer, his frustration points to the one who is greater than he is. You see, Solomon could attempt to create a second Eden, but he could not create a second Adam. Solomon could attempt to find sufficiency outside of himself, but he was totally unable to be sufficient within himself. Solomon could purchase the finest of things and buy the greatest treasures in the world, but he could not pay the price of his own life or rescue himself from the prison of unfulfillment or dissatisfaction or the inevitability of death. But there is one who is greater than Solomon. And that's Jesus. That is God himself, the author of all wisdom and the source of all pleasure, joy, life, peace, and sufficiency. This Jesus has come from beyond the sun into this world to live under the sun. 
And he comes into this world and lives a perfect, God-pleasing, God-pursuing life, demonstrating what it means to truly fear God and keep his commandments. The ultimate conclusion that Solomon comes to at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, when Jesus is tempted to succumb to the futility of this world's fleeting pleasures, being taken to the top of a mountain and showed the kingdoms of this world and their glories by Satan, he resists. He doesn't succumb to this world's fleeting pleasures. He resists perfectly when we don't. And instead of looking for life and joy outside of himself, he has life within himself. Instead of making himself great, attempting to surpass all those before him by accumulating the treasures of this world, Jesus humbles himself, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he takes the form of a servant, becoming poor so that we might become rich and have treasures in heaven. Instead of purchasing all the things that we think will bring us fulfillment, Jesus purchases us. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold, as 1 Peter says, but with his own life, with his blood. And then he leads us to the source of actual fulfillment, God himself. As Psalm 16 says, in whose presence there is fullness of joy, and at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. It's in the wisdom of Jesus, the one greater than Solomon, that instead of frustrating cries of vanity, vanity, Jesus cries, meaning, meaning, and fullness, fullness, and from his fullness we receive grace upon grace. Jesus says in John that whoever thirsts for him, let him come and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is what Pastor James, this is what Solomon point us to, the wisdom for the resurrected life, that it's in Jesus that we find true meaning and true purpose. It's through union with him, through faith in his sacrificial death, that we become sons and daughters of God, being given value and identity that we could have never achieved with an infinite number of earthly pleasures. It's through the resurrection of Jesus that God ultimately displays that our lives have meaning both now and throughout eternity, that in Christ there is satisfaction and meaning, pleasure and purpose. Listen today as we prepare to take communion Maybe you're here and you find yourself as, uh, you can identify yourself as someone who's searching. You may not have necessarily identified yourself as being a follower of God, but you can totally relate to Solomon here and you say you're searching. The road to pleasure and satisfaction has not led you to total fulfillment. Hear this preacher that come to the same conclusion that he does. And as you see communion being taken today. Remain at your seat. Pray. Take a moment to think about the satisfaction and the sufficiency that that God offers through his son Jesus, through his sacrificial death for your sin in your place, and through his resurrection so that you might have life and that you might be forgiven, that you might experience joy and pleasure with him. If that's you, remain at your seat today and, and just pray. Think. But if you're here and you say your hope is placed in the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus for your sin, for your waywardness and seeking pleasure in all other things, and maybe even at times you find yourself still wandering, looking for pleasure outside of God, I know that in your weakness, Christ offers grace. 
He offers peace. He offers pleasure. He offers life through his broken body and through his shed blood. As you partake of communion today, be reminded of this gift that he gives us. Because it's through the reality of what God has done through Jesus that we are able to enjoy the good things that he's given us in this life. Be reminded of that as you take communion today. Turn from your pursuit of pleasure and all other things. Repent from it and trust in him.